Welcome to the Block Fuel Podcast, where we sit down and speak with thought leaders in the ever-changing world of digital assets. So sit back and relax, because another episode of the Block Fuel Podcast begins now. Welcome back to the Block Fuel Podcast. We are joined here with John Woods, who's the CTO of Algorand. So super excited to talk to you. We've been talking about Algorand for quite some time. I know with Back in my previous podcast, we talked with Anthony Scaramucci and was talking in depth about Algorand as well. So welcome to Blockfield Podcast. Uh, listen, thanks for having me on the Blockfield Podcast, Abby. And uh, I'm hoping I can give a more entertaining uh, session than Scaramucci did. <laughs> <laughs> his, was, his was pretty good. So we'll have, we'll have to go uh, pretty hard here. But why don't we start off? I know Algorand is probably one of the more popular protocols that is out there today, but for those that don't know, that's always our first question. If you could just give a high-level overview of, of what Algorand does, and we can take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So um, Algorand is a layer one blockchain. And what I mean by that is that it's not some kind of uh, technology that helps other blockchains scale. It is its own blockchain. It is, has a, its own network. It has a whole bunch of nodes that ensure that the blockchain stays in parity and that consensus is achieved. So it is a fundamental layer one blockchain. Um, Similar to Ethereum and Cardano, Algorand is programmable. And so you can write smart contracts or apps that sit on the chain and, and control the movement of funds. And you can build all sorts of financial instruments and DeFi type things. I would say, you know, I've worked across a whole bunch of different cryptocurrencies over time. And I would say that Algorand is just really well engineered. And so because it has world-class distributed systems engineering and, and employs some really sophisticated applied cryptography primitives, this means that when you're building on Algorand, and I like to think of these blockchains as distributed operating systems. So it's like writing an app for your MacBook or your iPhone, except for in this instance, the code runs globally uh, on many computers at the same time. And so when you build apps for Algorand, because of these virtues I mentioned around the engineering and the quality of the work, your app really sings. And so I like to think of Algorand as an open source, decentralized operating system that runs your code in a decentralized context, but does so with the user experience that you might expect if you were running that code locally. So just diving a quick look into your background, I always like to hear like the early stages of how you got involved. So I'm just looking at your LinkedIn again. You, know, you were at the Central Bank of Ireland. You'd worked at Consensus. What brought you to Algorand and, and how did you get connected with those folks? Yeah, sure. So I guess um, in 20 seconds, my career history is nerdy kid. Went to university or college, studied uh, computer engineering, was pretty good at it. Wasn't very good in actual school, by the way, because I just, I like computers and didn't like history and geography. Um, then left and was a developer for Ericsson for a while in C++, baptism of fire, because university doesn't really teach you what production engineering is like. Spent a little bit of time uh, during the global downturn. I worked actually in banking. It's funny, it went from engineering to banking during the global financial crisis. I really had a kind of really loved Forex, was working uh, as a Forex trader for City. Moved, into, moved to London, spent six years uh, as a derivatives analyst building uh, and building risk management pricing solutions for foreign exchange derivatives, FX options. And so, you know, I guess even when I'm working on the finance side of things, still in the code, still helping build financial models for pricing, financial instruments, that kind of stuff. Came back to Ireland from London and, and then started working in Central Bank where I got, where at that point I was kind of, I was already involved in crypto. I was buying Bitcoin, trading Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and kind of, because, you know, I was doing the, the Forex and I liked, to, I liked the trading angle. And then at one point I was like, I need to understand this better. And so I just kind of forced myself to learn about uh, cryptography, starting with things like RSA, the, you know, the basics of, of asymmetric, uh, asymmetric crypto, eventually moving on to elliptic curves and other kind of more complicated uh, or more modern uh, uh, cryptography primitives. Um, and before you know it, I kind of 
I moved from Central Bank to work on Ethereum um, with consensus because I guess my CV at that point told the story of a guy who understood fintech, understood cryptography, understood software architecture and engineering. And so I was a good fit for building apps on Ethereum for enterprise clients. That's what consensus does. They went out to big banks and they built apps, enterprise apps, using Ethereum as part of the application, but ultimately servicing enterprise-grade apps uh, for financial institutions. From there, I worked uh, on Cardano. I was the lead architect and led applied cryptography on Cardano for some time, which I guess actually was probably the, where my career kind of like uh, pivoted up because you, I became more well-known in, in, the, in the industry when I, when I took that role because it was a big job. And then, yeah, finally, I uh, moved over to Algorand, where I am now as the CTO. Yeah, John, I think that, you know, part of like that background is like, I, I think you're obviously, if you're a CS major, you're going to be smart and you get into cryptography and it shows a lot of curiosity. You know, for a lot of our like listeners that are new to their careers, that are super interested in just crypto, Web3 as a whole, but don't know how you get from the starting place to, you know, the CTO of foundation. Could you kind of walk us through like really what that CTO role looks like at both Algorand and what you would imagine other foundations, some of the day-to-day stuff and like, you know, what that entails. Are you managing a small army like you would a large enterprise or is it, you know, everyone's kind of a flat organization where you're just kind of setting direction and then, hey, go do this. Yeah, great question. Maybe I'll just start by saying I have a regular computer science degree from or computer engineering degree from a, a regular institution, you wouldn't know it. It's not like an Ivy League school or anything like that. And so um, I also am not formally educated on cryptography. So like all the cryptography stuff that I know, all the mathematics that I know is all from uh, reading books uh, from when I was like, you know, 30 years old or whatever, and learning on like YouTube and stuff like that. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't come from kind of a privileged edu- education. And so really it was just curiosity that drove me to where I am and taking risks and taking new jobs and kind of always trying to kind of search for the next thing that I could be working in. And, and so I guess anyone can do it is really what my point is there. It's not like you don't have to go to Harvard or go to some major university and study formal mathematics or anything like that to do this kind of work. You just have to be passionate and curious, I think, are the most important things. And then, you know, I'd say, yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting. I was talking on a podcast yesterday just about what it's like to manage engineering teams. And there's different kinds of schools of thought around how you build these teams. In distributed systems like blockchains, like Algorand, Cardano, and, and Ethereum, you'll find that the team that you need to be successful is really varied. And so, of course, in software engineering, you usually have engineers, architects, and QA. But in, in distributed systems like Algorand, when you're building these kind of blockchain networks, you kind of need engineers, architects, and QA. Um, but you also need benchmarking specialists. You need applied cryptographers, so people who understand the cryptography Lego bricks and can put them together to build systems. You need applied mathematics in some circumstances because you're trying to do analysis of the network around the network stacks or around kind of like the gaming angles. You need economists. And so it's the intersection of a a bunch of different hard disciplines. And so what's interesting, it's great because in some ways you work with some of, you work with a very, a really varied talent pool, but it's, it's interesting in terms of how I personally build the teams in my general ethos, um, both, which is consistent. When I was at Ethereum, where I had, or sorry, at Consensus working on Ethereum, where I had, I don't know, 30, 40 engineers that I would work with or, or report to me, where I was at Cardano or at OHK working on that, where I had, and, you know, engineering, architecture, applied cryptography kind of reporting it to me, or indeed where I am now at the foundation, uh, a CTO, where I have R&D, uh, so research and development of bespoke kind of uh, software, 
I have our network and infrastructure people looking after all the relay nodes and all that kind of stuff. I have AlgoKid, our develop our, our kind of like tool suite for building apps in Algorand. We, we, we take care of that product that, that helps people build on Algorand. I have, um, you know, our DevRel guys. Yeah, I'm trying to make sure I don't leave anyone out, but like, you know, I have a whole bunch of different disparate teams that do different things, all kind of, but they all need to work together because the DevRel guys need to know about how AlgoKid works and our infrastructure guys need to understand what's going to be changing in the protocol. And, and you can, you know, all these teams interact. And so my guiding principle as someone who has over time become a more senior leader in, in engineering has been to be vertically integrated. And what I mean by that is I want the guys on my team to understand that I understand what they're doing and then and to see that I could do that work with them too. And so I tried to kind of get my hands dirty, be in the trenches as much as possible. And I think I found anyway in, in engineering circles, because I don't know what it's like really being a leader in, in a business circle or being a leader in a business development unit, which might be totally different. But within the kind of engineering circle, I find that the team really appreciates it if they see you not as a kind of an ivory tower type leader, but instead as someone who will care about the work that they're doing, who understands the work that they're doing, who understands the, the, the difficulties of, of their day-to-day -day work and the challenges they face. And also critically, and I really pride myself on this, I try to stay as sharp as possible. And of course, it's not always easy to do that, but I try to stay as in touch with the tech as possible. And so I like to think that they would see that I care enough to be able to do that work too. And so when you have that relationship with people and you treat them with respect and you foster an environment, which is one which uh, promotes learning and promotes, promotes kind of like asking questions, mm -hmm. I think you have a very, a very successful um, environment for people. Uh, yeah. to to grow in and and they like it so the, the people I work with I think they like their their work I I and and um yeah I would say that as well I I I stay well away from micromanaging people hire brilliant people and let them do their work and and then that's it and it's been a very successful recipe I'd, maybe I've just been lucky by hiring brilliant people but yeah no I think it's it's it, it's definitely a good point I mean I, I'm thinking up throughout my career I've had multiple managers directors and people that I've worked kind of underneath but it's the people that work that don't consider me working underneath them right it's the people that work side by side and uh shout out to my my first ceo john provis he, i was working actually in logistics was my first job out of college and he was on the phones pounding the phones with us and he's the founder of the company and it was incredible and you couldn't it was hard for people to get lazy when the founder of the company is literally on the floor banging the phones with you guys and it was just the coolest thing ever seeing a leader in in that position Curious, just kind of going back a little bit for the non-Web3 native folks, what would you say like the, the main builders on Elgo are? Like who, what types of industries are, is this gaming? Is it, you mentioned a few different areas, but I'd love to dig in a little bit more for the non-Web3 native. Sure. And, and maybe I could take a step even further back and just kind of talk about why the hell would you bother building an app on a blockchain rather than writing a, a piece of software that runs on your computer or your phone? And so... I think a lot of people don't really think about this so much. And so maybe, yeah, just let's, let's talk about that for a sec. When I first got an iPhone, I was blown away by the fact that it had a GPS receiver inside it. And I could kind of like, I could write code that would run, but would also be able to ask the phone where it was. And so to me, that was something that I couldn't do on, on my, my Intel laptop. And so uh, the first app I wrote for iPhone was one that just very simply found, I hard coded the GPS lo locations of the various subway stations um, and the city I lived in. and when it started, it would just find me, find the, as the crow flies, the, the closest subway station and just show me the train times for that station, northbound and southbound. And so I love that. And it was, it was a personal tool that I, that I wrote and I, I really loved playing with it. And I was proud of what I had, had written. And I guess 
a lot of people, that's why they write software. They have a problem or they have an idea that they think could be solved. And so they, they will go and they'll write a piece of software that either automates that problem away or um, an application that kind of enhances their day-to-day experience as a tool. And so whether it's Microsoft Excel, which has been an incredible success over the last uh, 30 years or whatever, or whether it's something something simpler uh, like my the tool I, I, I described, that's why people write software. They write software to fix problems and, and, to, and to make life easier. Mm-hmm. And so if we take a step then from traditional software engineering, which is what I just described, and talk about why you would want to build an application on the blockchain. Just like kind of maybe my realization that you could build a powerful app around getting home using the train uh, by using by leveraging the GPS receiver in a phone, there are certain things that blockchains do really well mm-hmm. that will allow an application to achieve something that it cannot achieve without a blockchain. And so I like to think of this kind of sliced into three major verticals. There's three kind of macro topics where blockchains really add value. Now, there's probably going to be more, and people will probably uh, have, of course, their own views. It's only my view. But from my experience, it's been disintermediation, i.e. removing the middleman. I think that's obviously the, the, one of the core insights as to what blockchain does. You know, And that's evident in the peer-to-peer transfer of funds. It's evident in the idea that like uh, TravelX, on, on a, which runs on Algorand, is now able to be able to buy tickets off an individual who, who was supposed to travel on the plane and can't travel anymore. It's peer-to-peer. You can trust them. You've removed the broker, you've disintermediated. Okay, that's that's one. The second, which is I guess obvious as well, is is veracity or provenance of goods and chain of trust. You know, whether it's, hey, is this uh is this Xanax real? Did it come from Pfizer or did it come from the street? Are these Christian Louboutin shoes real? That kind of stuff, right? The provenance of goods, coffee, uh, medicines, etc. Mm-hmm. And the last kind of chunky vertical that I feel like blockchain kills it is in decentralized identity and self sovereign self sovereignty. And so this idea that, hey, I own the keys for this NFT, it's mine and only I can move it. I own the keys to these funds, this identity that I have, only I can attest to things with this identity. And so if your app falls into one of these kind of broad categories, I think blockchain has is going to make it incredibly compelling. Mm-hmm. And so on Algorand, we've seen a lot of apps that fall into these, into these kind of categories. But if you look at what's most popular right now, like what's kind of like the, the hot topic at the moment, it tends to be real-world assets is, is kind of a sexy one, tokenization of property, tokenization of, of real-world assets, and even, uh, as I mentioned, ticketing, peer-to-peer sales of, of tickets and peer-to-peer sales of kind of, of assets that are, yeah, real-world assets. That's what's driving a lot of volume on chain at the moment. But still, with that, you also have the traditional things that fall into disintermediation, like DeFi. We have a lot of, we have a lot of kind of DeFi apps that are doing big volume as well, swaps, uh, trading, that kind of stuff. Um, liquid governance. But I think, just to close, I think that although the stuff we have right now is very cool, I think probably the most innovative apps, the ones that really take the world by storm, haven't even been invented yet. And I think if you look, you know, similar to to mobile app development, which is which has proven incredibly popular because people use their Android phones and iPhones kind of ubiquitously now, maybe sometimes over, over a computer or a traditional computer, um, the apps that shipped on Android day one um, they are not the most popular apps today. And so we've seen an explosion in terms of popularity of certain apps. And I think we'll see something similar on blockchain as I see it as a decentralized operating system. Real quick, I just had a question kind of going back to as the CTO, right? You guys aren't necessarily a public company in the sense of like the SEC overviewing and all that, right? But people are still trading algo and they see the prices go down and you guys are certainly not alone there. Crypto as a whole has come down. 
how does that impact? I'm just always curious, like, as you guys see the price, how many changes can you truly make? Obviously, the macro with all the different regulations coming through and just people with the fear and FUD. And it's just so funny watching it again now with Bitcoin. I'm in my fantasy football league and all my friends are starting to talk about crypto again. I'm like, ah, you're going to wait till Bitcoin's back at 60 when you buy it. Yeah, again. of course. Of course, it's that's what people do, it's right? That, it's always funny. How do you think other CTOs and maybe yourself, like, how does that change some of the direction in what you guys are doing? Is that, does that impact anything you guys are doing? It's interesting. I've worked in crypto through a bunch of bear markets. When I was at Consensus, it was, and yeah, I'm a little bit fuzzy on this, but let's say it was 2017-ish. It was like, I think it was after the ICO boomy thing had, had dropped in. And I think, I remember being there when they had layoffs or, you know, people lost their jobs and, and uh, they were downsizing the company. And uh, they'd just grown like ex exponentially uh, during the time I was there. And Ethereum fell from something like around, I don't know, like, like $500 down to like $80 or something. And it was really starting to feel like uh, the end of the world at the time. Um, and you just kind of have to build through. I wasn't a CTO there, of course, but I, you just have to kind of build, build through it. And so, but it is distracting. Of course, like, I feel like, again, when I, I kind of, I took a detour away from crypto after Ethereum, after consensus, rather. I worked leading cloud security at a traditional SaaS company. And so I, it was all like cryptography and cloud security, but it wasn't anything to do with kind of a cryptocurrency. And then I came back to Cardano and then all to Algorand. And what's funny is there was kind of a bull market while I was away and now I'm back and it's back to a bear market. It's absolutely sucks. I, I never had the pleasure of working in crypto. Can you imagine like during the euphoria of, of a bubble? Never had that pleasure. I've been in bull markets, of course, because I've been holding crypto since like 2015 or 2014 or whatever never been worked in. And so I'm very much looking forward, hopefully, to working. But yeah, but it's a bummer, man, for a whole bunch of reasons. If I'm being, if I'm being real with you, like, it's like a lot of the dApps and the various projects that are out there that are building on these decentralized operating systems, Algorand, Cardano, Ethereum, they're under pressure. Their bottom line is under pressure. They, they, and even if they're not selling tokens or selling cryptocurrencies to, to stay afloat, they are finding it harder to get investment in other things because macroscopic bear markets scare investors. And, and so... That, that's a bummer. I think at the foundation, we are very careful with money. And so I'm always trying to optimize whether it's getting good deals on, on our infrastructure costs or whether it's, you know, in-housing things that we were paying for externally, where we can, where I can hire, say, two people to, to do it for half the price of what I was paying an external vendor to do it. We're always trying to optimize because I just came from a, a kind of a mindset where you're, I'm always in survival mode, always just trying to hive away as much as possible. But that's a uh, it's, a, it's a personal thing. I mean, I do the same thing with my personal savings. I just, I just, tr I tend not to spend. But, but at the foundation in general is always trying to be a careful custodian of, of the the ecosystem because there's a there's quite a responsibility there. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I spoke about it briefly the other day. When you're working on the protocol, as I was in Cardano, I was directly working on the protocol. I was the guy who signed off the protocol before it was released. There was a heaviness uh, in that action because we had changed code. And maybe there was bugs in there that we didn't catch that would cause a catastrophic failure of the network or would cause a loss of funds for people. And it used to kind of keep me awake but when we were releasing, if I wasn't, if I, and, and of course, I was always very careful about what we released, but it, it was scary. And so similarly, but somewhat different, when you're working at the foundation as a senior leader, of course, the decisions I make to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on, on developer tooling or on various projects which I think are going to uplift uh, the ecosystem like AlgoKit, Algo which is allowing people to write in Python to express smart contracts rather than, say, some low-level assembly language like Teal. Of course, this is 
this is wonderfully inclusive and should see a huge surge in terms of the number of people using the chain. But again, you still feel some responsibility there. Like you're, you're second guessing yourself. Like, am I making the right decision here? Is it the right decision? But in general, I would say that the foundation is a very careful custodian um, of the ecosystem treasury and of our own operational funds because we recognize, int in intrinsically, we recognize that we don't make money. You know, we, we aren't, we are not revenue generating. Okay. In the, in the traditional sense, we're a nonprofit. And so, we have to be here of those ones. Otherwise, we won't be around. And I'll have to, have, I'll have to find another job. Um, the, and the last thing I would say is that there's one other aspect about the price that I do care about and I do watch. And that's in relation to the security of the network. And of course, as the cost of the token goes down, and this is for all proof-of-stake networks, not just for Algorand, the fiat or dollar cost, if you like, of upsetting the network also decreases. And so what you want to do is you want to have a secure network possible, of course. If you couldn't buy any algo, then the the network is completely secure. But in in reality, um, there is always a dollar cost that mm -hmm. that you can achieve that you can kind of hit, and it, it determines the security of the network. So we watch these things and we try to make sure that we encourage as much stake as possible to secure the network. And that's why, by the way, we're doing things like consensus incentives, Algorand. That you you may or may not be aware of this, but they're transi transitioning from a a kind of a non incentivized model where people didn't get paid to to secure the network to an incentivized model where people do get paid. And we're hoping, of course, as has happened with all of the other networks, that this will encourage a decentralization and indeed the security of the network. Yeah. And, and John, I think just kind of following up on that investment side, I, I thought one thing we saw really recently was that you guys launched like Algorand Explorer powered by like ChatGPT. And so that's, you know, where you're spending both your time and resources, like putting that into place. And I'd love to hear your thought process on like, you know, you're like, hey, ChatGPT's out. There's a huge wave of investment in AI. Is this something that, you know, you see is a big uplift on the engineering side? Is it something that catches that wave? Or is it a no-brainer where it's like, hey, guys, I know it's pretty trendy right now, but it also makes sense to, like, aggregate this data and have a really easy way for people to interact with Algo. Right. And um, what's wonderful about that particular thing is that the developer who did it, MG, he is just a brilliant guy in the ecosystem who did it of his own accord. And so okay. he's related to the foundation. He's, he's one of our ambassadors and stuff like that. And we work with him, but it didn't actually cost him. He, well, it cost him his time and his money, but it didn't, yeah. it didn't cost the foundation anything. Actually, he just released a new version today, which is super cool. Three days ago, OpenAI, of course, the company behind ChatGPT4 announced this kind of like programmable GPT. And what it is in a nutshell is that you can kind of take ChatGPT4 and imbue it with a personality and kind of like a purpose or a kind of a, a raison d'etre. And so what he's done is he's taken GPT4 and he announced this today on Twitter. I retweeted it, but it, it's only a couple of hours ago. He's kind of imbued it with loads and tons of knowledge about Algorand, both developer documentation, a consumer documentation, so like just information on the foundation site, and with the ability to query the blockchain. And so now we have uh, a version of ChatGPT dedicated to Algorand, which will be public very soon, which you can ask any question. You can say to it, hey, write me a contract, write me a smart contract that, that, that uh, you know, handles, uh, I don't know, uh, an auction. You can say to it, hey, what's the balance of woods.algo, you know, using the, uh, the domain? Or you can say to it, hey, what's the developer documentation say about how to set up a multi-sig wallet? And so this is super cool. And just to answer your question more, more high level, I personally love ML AI. It's something I've been a hobbyist in for a while. I, have a, I, w I went and bought a, a chunky GPU so that I could play around with stable diffusion and generate stupid images all day, censored. <laughs> and the kind of the latest move in terms of these transformer models with with natural language processing and and, and what what we've seen with GPT four and GPT four Turbo and hopefully GPT five to come is mind mind boggling. I mean, uh, 
I was using it the other day just to show my father-in-law who has hadn't seen it ever before. And I was like, he uses Siri all the time and he thinks Siri is, is idiotic. And I said to him, dude, check this out. Talk to this thing. Ask, he was a doctor. He's a retired doctor. I said, ask it some medical questions. It's like talking back to him about like the structure of drugs. Then, I, then he's a, he likes mechanic. He likes playing around with his, with his cars. I said, now dude, ask it like questions, like heavy questions about like changing clutches in an engine or whatever. Yeah. And it's like responding. He's like, oh my God, what is that thing? And so watching his face drop when, you know, like I, he just like, couldn't fathom that it was so much better than Siri, right? Um, yeah. I think it's super cool. I know there's a little bit of people are a bit stressed about it. Like, you know, there's, I've seen protests now, like stop the AI and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm the, I'm not so sure about we should stop it. We should, of course, be careful in, in, in things that we do, especially when we connect these things to, to um, systems that have that are dangerous. I don't think we should connect GPT-4 to the nuclear missile silos or anything like that. But uh, I do think that this is super cool and i think it will change the face of of kind of uh the workplace and i think it will change the face of of society uh, over the next kind of 10 to 15 years so would you say just real quick a follow-up on that would you say like in the next three to six months here you see like kind of like powerful tools and, and application of, of ai within cryptos you know having just that experience on the de developer side where like just like going to algo kit and having you know python that you can like you know, write applications in is like going to the chat GPT and saying like, Hey, I have a real world asset. I want to tokenize it. And I want to put a, you know, create a smart contract that involves these real estate terms and, you know, these escrow types, like something like that's pretty tangible for, you know, non-technical folks like Avi and I, where it's like, okay, great. Like you're basically selling a house or leasing a building mm -hmm. on the blockchain. Is that kind of how you see, you know, AI really helping and merging with blockchain? Absolutely. And so I, I, I'm, I don't really think we're going to see smart contracts with like AI inside them where you ask them questions. I don't think that that makes yeah. sense. Smart contracts by definition are these like, like they're like embedded. To, it's like running an app on your washing machine, right? It's like you don't have a long time to run when you're a smart contract and you don't, you don't have a lot of resources to run when you're a smart contract because you're running on a decentralized network. It's not the same as running an app at home that can run for an hour. And so I absolutely think that uh, where it'll be most useful is in helping people uh, develop and taking away those kind of menial tasks and also allowing business users who ultimately it's business people who drive products forward, who drive businesses forward, right? Um, allowing business people to express business intent without having to get down into the syntax of programming languages. Cause you know what you want to do. Business people and product development people know what the product should be. They, they know the product market fit. They know the go-to-market strategy, but sometimes of course they can't, uh, they can't express that in code because they're not, they're not coders. And so. This has huge, I think, implications for empowering people um, to really bring their vision to Algorand and to other uh, networks and to other operating systems. One other thing I would say on the converse, I think it's been interesting watching the deep fakes. Um, I was listening to on YouTube the other day, like Johnny Cash uh, sing a Taylor Swift song. And I was <laughs> like, it was really, it was really quite good. I don't, I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan, but no, I, I like that song. Um, and uh, dude, it was like, I couldn't believe it. Like the, even the nuances in his voice. And I'm a Johnny Cash fan. I, I, I could, I could, it, like, it didn't even sound fake. It was pleasurable to listen to Johnny yeah. Cash. I wanted more of the song. <laughs> so and between that and the kind of deep fake videos and the kind of like AI image stuff, and I'm sure you've seen this on Twitter and other places. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe blockchain has a place where you think coming back to vertical, the middle vertical of the provenance and chain of trust that someone 
can kind of sign a bit, uh, sign something uh, as an example with their with their blockchain credentials or their decentralized identity to prove that indeed that video is theirs. And so the veracity yeah. of of information as we enter an age where we can't really trust audio anymore in a court setting, I don't think we can't really trust video anymore nearly in a court setting. And so maybe there's a there's something there to mm. to the veracity of information that blockchain could help. But it's a very interesting time we live in. I suppose everyone probably says that people probably said that when they seen fire for the first time. But um. Yeah, I think <laughs> No, I think what you're saying, there's a, there's an interesting company called Nodal uh, that's starting to get into that space, actually. And that is one area, you know, I have another podcast that's more on the stock market side. And I remember there was an image of a bomb going off in front of the, I forget if it was the Pentagon or something like that, right? And it yeah. dropped the market $6 billion. And, and eventually they figured it out, but it was like for a few seconds, it had dropped $6 billion. There's real implications there um, that go well beyond where you do need to understand, like, what is the original product or what is the original content here, right? And it is starting to get to a point where it's like it gets in the wrong hands. It could be seen as evil. So this is a right. way to almost govern it in a sense of like authenticating and giving a stamp and saying this is the real content that's out there. Maybe there's other ones that are out there too, but that's not the real one, right? And so, I don't want to get too philosophical, but like as an example, I think a lot of technologies fall into that category. Um, you could take knives and say, well, I can use a knife to eat my dinner, but also it's a dangerous weapon. Or cryptography, just at large, forget about cryptocurrencies, but like the idea that I can send an encrypted message directly to Jody or to yourself, right? Where no one can read it except for the two of us. Um, that is out there. It's in the public domain. Anyone can send encrypted messages with enough effort uh, to each other um, without going through iMessage or WhatsApp or whatever. And so, you know, that, that in a way is kind of a very powerful thing. And, and it can be used for wrong, of course. But I think like all of these things, probably the right answer is to allow the progression, the technological progression, um, but to do so uh, while safeguarding, you know, people as much as possible. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, it, it kind of dovetails into regulation where I want to just touch on slightly. Mm -hmm. And Coinbase made the decision to move kind of over to the EU in, in Dublin. Would love to hear just a little bit about like the Web3 scene in, in Ireland overall. And then you had a tweet when you brought up your Twitter. I just to scan real quick to see if there's anything really interesting I'd wanted to touch on. And um, Article 45 is something I definitely would love to hear your take a little bit more on. And, and I'll have you describe it because you'll explain it a little bit better. But the All In podcast was talking about how like this could really change freedom amongst the internet. Like internet's open source, and if they have the ability to basically eavesdrop and tamper with some of the the website traffic or anything that's going on the internet. Would love to hear your take. So I know that's a two-part question. This part is like, you know, what, what's the scene like over in Ireland and how some of this regulation where Europe almost looked as kind of the safe haven or at least more crypto-friendly than the US was, how this Article 45 could change some of that potentially. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and by the way, I should start by saying I'm, I, as the chief nerd, I have no idea about compliance or legal things. But, uh, but yeah, you know, Ireland has had kind of an interesting history, by the way, generally with tech, because you probably are aware Apple's headquartered in Ireland, yeah. uh, $13 billion tax bill and all that drama. Uh, Google's here. I think it's headquartered. Meta is here. I think certainly, I think it's headquartered as well, or uh, if it's not in Menlo Park or whatever. And so there's a whole bunch of tech companies. And the reason that was historically was because Ireland had low corporation tax. You could come pay very little tax here to the government as a corporation. And we've seen it as a kind of a win-win because they would hire local people or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so... We've had this unusual kind of success for a small country. There's only like 5 million people here, right? Um, in general, it's been kind of like the Silicon Valley of Europe a little bit just because of that tax decision. And by the way, I don't think the EU in general likes that tax haven-y thing, but, uh, but it's, the way, it's the way things went. Um, so, uh, and 
if, and as, as that kind of followed, we had a whole bunch of techies here. We had like, just like the Google engineers, the Apple engineers, the, the Facebook engineers, and all of the ancillary kind of tech companies that kind of were here anyway, just in the, in the orbit of those companies. And so we've kind of had an unusually successful tech scene. And so we were perfectly poised, um, when blockchain kicked off, we had a whole bunch of people who were naturally interested in it. And I remember even early days, like. 2013, 2014, I was going to like Bitcoin meetups and stuff like that in the basement of some pub somewhere and just a bunch of people talking about it. And so we had this like natural grassroots movement in, in Ireland um, okay. around the tech. And so I think it's, it's a really vibrant scene here, by the way, even Kraken, it's the exchange that I, I prefer personally. And, and Kraken has got a, I don't want to say the wrong words, but like, I think a money license or they've got from the Irish Central Bank, they're now a, a kind of a regulated institution within Ireland. And so you know, we're seeing not just Coinbase, but other major exchanges take foot here. And there's a number of different crypto firms. Indeed, even Algorand Foundation has an office in Ireland and, and is, is registered here as well. We have an entity that's that's Irish. And so, and that's, you know, there's, and by the way, I should say as well, even in our own kind of management team, the COL is Irish, you know, the, the board, a number of the board members are Irish. And the same with other cryptocurrencies. Consensus has an office here as well. It's all of its professional services based here. And so, really vibrant scene around around cryptocurrency and digital assets here. What's funny is that although the government, I, I don't really feel, I went to a government kind of think, think tank thing, kind of meeting where we were kind of brainstorming around support for the government of, of digital assets and, and indeed kind of like Web3 in general. And I think the government's kind of stayed a bit quiet. They kind of tried to follow, I think, what, what the UK does and what, what Germany does as, as the kind of leaders in the, in the Eurozone or whatever. Um, or the European Economic Area, and so they don't really have strong opinions on crypto at the moment. So, yeah, I think it's a very interesting space that that that, and we have a lot of talent on the ground here. In terms of, you know, just generally to, go, to come to the second part of your question around government interference with things, I think it's, I mean, I don't know, of course, and it's a philosophical thing, and I'm sure there's lots of sides to it. But in general, I err on the side of kind of libertarianism in the sense that, like, I think a government should have certain levels of interaction with things. So, for example. I think that it is appropriate that government sets standards around food and hygiene and restaurants and stuff like that. I think it is appropriate that there's a certain kind of social floor with which a person cannot fall under so that, you know, I, I think it's quite good to have some you know, uh, public med medical care and stuff like that. I think that that is a good thing for society broadly. Um, but in general, I do, I, I don't like the idea that governments are going to backdoor crypto, uh, sorry, I mean, cryptography, backdoor security mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, and although I've heard many times this kind of idea that, and we see it in the UK as well, like the UK had a big kind of like digital act or whatever they called it, where they were trying to kind of get access to backdoor things like iMessage or WhatsApp, et cetera. And I can see that from the point of view of like the anti-terrorism card and the anti kind of child abuse card, I can understand why those things are things governments might want. But I think that's a, there's, there's a huge cost to that. And so I think privacy is very important. And by the way, we don't have enough privacy on blockchain. Maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. But um, I think privacy is really critical. Um, and if we allow governments to kind of interfere with with private communications between people, I mean, it's it's only if you backdoor crypto, it's only one more one more hop till, you know, they have to install something in my house so they can listen to what I'm talking about to make sure I don't speak about bombs or terrorist acts. I mean, you know, where where does where does it stop? Where do you get the line of privacy? And I kind of think if I can have people in my house and have a private conversation with them, I should also be able to have a private encrypted conversation on iMessage with those people. Also, I would say, if you look back in the history of, of what's gone on, when the US tried to make um, 
exporting cryptography in the same category as exporting munitions. There was, I don't know, I don't know if you've seen this, but in, yeah. In, yeah, yeah. So the, the United States made like, you know, Microsoft like export when they were selling products abroad, they had to decrease the security of the, of the bit strength of the encryption um, for a phase. It went to, I think it went to the Supreme Court and it was basically overturned, but it, it was like, it was the same as exporting ammunition and, and weapons as exporting cryptography for, for a time in the United States. Um, or if you look at like Prism, the, the NSA, where they were filtering traffic and all this kind of stuff, I think that kind of, or even one last one, when the, when the NSA had that like dual deterministic bit number generator, they had like, the, like NIST, you know, the, the standards institute yeah. had said, this is how you generate random numbers on a computer. And the NSA kind of had kind of like tweaked one of the knobs so that they could generate the numbers along with you. I mean, this stuff was found out and then they get a bad rep and then NIST are like, oh, you ca I can't believe you made us do this. trust in the government. Right. And, and, and so what people, I mean, so th there's been a few examples and every single time a government has tried to interfere or backdoor something, it's failed. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on the side of, hey, government, leave those kids alone. <laughs> but I can see both sides. I can see both sides. I, f I find that fascinating. Like I'm in crypto circles and it, and it feels like a lot of people within the crypto space are, are in that mindset, right? Uh, and, and it's refreshing to hear and, and to see. I was just thinking of this example too, actually, with Amazon Alexa. And they said they're not listening. But one, one right there. There we go. <laughs> so, Amazon's already listened to this whole conversation. It's probably. It's probably going straight to the NSA. I mean, you seem like OPSEC is not very good, right? Yeah. So they yeah. actually solved like a murder down in, I think it was in Texas, that they had heard a domestic dispute or something, and they were able to go back, pull the tape from Amazon Alexa, and they were able to solve that that murder actually through it. So it is, there. there's that balance, right? I, I see both sides sure. where, where it can come into play. And so- Back to um, Article 45. I don't know if you know a ton about that specifically, but um, I think it's interesting to bring to the public because I, I think a lot of these bills that go through, people don't pay attention. The masses are not paying attention to this. There's distractions. They're focused on what Kim Kardashian is having for lunch when they're pushing these major bills through, right? And so I think it's important for our audience to, to understand a little bit more about that and, and what potential implications that could have. I think so. And it, I know it comes across sometimes as boring or like, just like, oh, the conspiracy stuff. But like, yeah. you know, I think we live in a generally fair society. And I think we live in it and like, in, you know, in the Europe and the US, I think it's generally fair, generally uh, a high quality of living, of course. But like, these things are, are quite important. And I think that, you know, they're quite profound. And if these changes are made, you know, I think it's, 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 it's worse for the average person. One thing I, I I'm on the same page as you, you can tell probably, but they keep the the definitions very broad and and so it allows for interpretation of how they'd want to interpret it and, and things like that so they do have a ripple effect on on everyone and, and people may not know that their their liberties are being pulled away from them in many of these cases just something important i thought to bring up i saw you tweet about it so i, I definitely want to talk about that can you go back to uh this quote i wrote it down he said we don't have enough privacy on the blockchain can you dive into that a little bit further and then yeah. also, like, how is, like, Algorand, you know, doing some things that might be privacy related, like from a feature set, pack set? Yeah, sure. So in most financial systems, you know, in traditional banking, of course, you have an expectation of privacy. You have an expectation that, I, that if, if I know your account details, I can't just look inside your account and see your transactions. I think very few people realize, uh, maybe not very few, but many people are unaware that when they're using blockchain, that there is this public ledger that is transparent and the amounts are shown and the addresses are shown, et cetera. And so, you know, a, f a funny example of this would be like, 
uh, I said to one of my buddies who, who who's non-technical, I said, hey, I'm just going to you know send you a little bit of, of BTC or Bitcoin. Just send me your address. And like I sent him like a fraction of a Bitcoin, like 0. 0.0001, because I wanted to actually just get his address. And then I went back to him just to play with him a little bit. And I was like, dude, you know, you've got, I see you've got like half a coin there or whatever. That's quite impressive. And he's like, how'd you know that? And like he had no, like he's, he's <laughs> yeah. a smart business guy, but he had absolutely no idea that it was possible to take his address, pop it into a block explorer on, on, on a website and just see the, the balance. Yep. And so he was like, you're not serious. This couldn't be how this works. And so he thought I'd like hacked his accounts. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think privacy is very important. I think people have an expectation generally of it, are surprised when they realize it's not there. And I think when, when I think without privacy, people are targeted. So like if, if, you know, if you know, a person has like, you know, 150 BTC, well, maybe there are people out there who are willing to try to exploit that person. And so, Mm -hmm. and so it comes down to a safety thing. Um, I think pretty much no blockchain has privacy functionally. I mean, Ethereum doesn't, Cardano doesn't, Algorand doesn't at the moment. Um, I think Monero is a a blockchain that I'm very passionate about because, and by the way, it was one of my earliest, it was started in 2014, so well well before Algorand. But it was something that like, it didn't, it doesn't try to be programmable like Algorand is. You can't just, you can't build apps on it. But what you can do is, of course, send money peer to peer, but do so privately where the amounts and the receive addresses and the sender addresses are not shown on the chain in a clear way. And so I think that that's a powerful concept. And I think we should be working to bring those technologies to Algorand. I know that the, um, I know Silvio, the founder of Algorand is personally, he cares deeply about privacy. He wants to make sure that Algorand eventually does have, have privacy features. Um, but at this time, they're still in R and D. They're not, they're in research, really not, not, not in terms of the implementation, but, um, yeah, other than Monero, I don't think there's any other blockchains out there that really do privacy. Well, there's a ha- there's a handful of other ones that are smaller that that have made a good effort in t- using ZKP, zero knowledge proofs, and other things like that. But ultimately, very tough to do. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of mathematical uh, magic, and it makes the it makes a lot of things much more complicated to scale and stuff like that. I think for one last thing, I'd say, in terms of smart contracts, what seems to be the way the industry is going is that for private smart contracts, what actually should what what might end up happening is your contract is executed off-chain. So it's not executed publicly. It's executed kind of in a private quorum. Mm-hmm. And the result of that contract or a commitment, a cryptographic commitment to the result, some kind of like attestation of the result, but not the actual result itself, will be written to the chain. So you can verify the contract was executed and that the right things were done, that the transactions were moved around, but you can't actually see what was executed. And this might be important because, as you guys will know, you're much more financially versed, versed than I am. Trading companies don't want their books to right. be open. The, the prop traders don't want to have their entire thing open. And so this is important if these digital assets are to become uh, ubiquitous. Yeah. No, it's funny. It is such a common misconception. You think crypto, you think drug dealer, you know, the, the early stage, you talk to someone on the street, they're like, oh, isn't that used for like drug dealer? Back to your uh, previous point, you can cut a piece of fruit with a knife or you can, you know, God forbid, do something nefarious <laughs> with it, right? But it's interesting to think about that because you'd think that governments would love crypto because it's literally all trackable, right? always is in the back of my head is shouldn't they be loving this right. you know, a lot more than they are because it, it's right there for you where everyone can see exactly the transactions that are happening and i know that there was was it called a tornado cash right? right so is there a fear that the government and i don't know if they've gone after like monero but in situations like that where their privacy is unavailable to the public are, is there a fear that regulations will come over that and say no we need to have full visibility there 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think it remains to be seen. Uh, you're absolutely right. Tornado.cash, for folks who are listening, was a way on Ethereum uh, to kind of anonymize your, your spend. Something that I'm, I've just said earlier in this podcast, I see as a human right. Um, and it was sanctioned by OFAC, I think. You know, it was basically kind of said, hey, you know, this, this is illegal and, and, and what's going on here is unacceptable. And so, um, you know, OFAC have a couple of Monero addresses on, on their list. It's obviously farcical because Monero addresses are technically one-time addresses, so they will never, ever be used again by definition or whatever. So it's yeah. a bit, it shows a little bit of ignorance of the actual technology. But I think it's very much, the, the you know, again, Monero is kind of completely open source. There's no foundation for Monero, so there's no one to really prosecute. It comes down to me, Jib, to be, it's like, how do you stop an idea? Like the idea that I should have financial privacy. I think probably like in life, like most things, the answer is a middle ground. And middle ground doesn't mean backdooring, but what it does mean is, for example, you know, the police can request your bank details and your, your bank statement if it's for an investigation and your bank will hand them up. When I spend money, my bank can see it and the merchant can see it. And I think, I think that something like that is probably where we need to get to, where we have functional privacy, uh, where people can't be targeted for their wealth, um, but, um, but, you know, still with, with, with kind of uh, the ability for law enforcement to be able to access uh, records if needed. And Monero has that feature, actually. It's called a view key. You can give law enforcement a view key, and they'll be able to verify the transactions that went in and out of your mm. of your account if you give them the key images as well. And so, yeah, I think a, probably a middle, a middle ground balance is probably the, white word, the right yeah. way, rather than extremism. So we got, we got yeah. like two, two minutes left here. Um, I guess just to kind of wrap it up, is there, what are the most exciting things for, about Algorand that you're, you know, in the next six, 12 months that you're looking out for and, and pretty excited to share with the world? What you absolutely. can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So, um, you know, the protocol is in fantastic shape. If you compare it to its peers, Algorand is elegantly designed. It is highly performant, so it will run your apps quickly and with a user experience that will delight your users. And now, with AlgoKit 2.0 and our imminent release of support for the Python programming language, where you'll be able to express your business intent in Python, which is a much simpler language to use than any of the previous languages we had, which were uh, quite niche. Whereas Python's really open, everyone, everyone, everyone knows it. Algorand now, with those technologies, AlgoKit and Python, has reduced go-to-market costs for people who are thinking of building on, on the chain, has reduced maintenance costs for people who are, are, are going to be building on the chain or, or already have code that runs on the chain, and opens Algorand to developers of all skill levels. You no longer need to be an adept, a godlike developer to build an Algorand. You can, you can build with simple knowledge of Python. Between that, our upcoming changes to increase the speed of the protocol even further with our dynamic Lambda, which is going to basically make the round times even faster, the block times even faster. The instant finality of Algorand, which when you're building enterprise-grade apps, you no longer have to worry, as you did on Ethereum, about transaction orchestration. You don't have to replay transactions that fail. You don't have to worry about block reorgs. It eliminates all classes of, of issue. This finality, once your transaction's in a block, it's final. No confirmations. And this simplifies bills of financial products. And then finally, I would say, our changes that are coming up in 2024 to move to incentivize consensus, where you will be paid to secure the network and indeed a more uh, rigorous peer-to-peer -peer style network rather than using the existing relay networks. This will decentralize Algorand even further. So I think a very good time to be to check out Algorand if you're interested. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, John. We could probably talk to you for another hour or so. We'll definitely stay in touch and, and appreciate you coming on uh, the Block Fuel podcast. Hey, listen, thank you for having me. See you guys. See ya. Yeah, thank you, John.